Hello, everybody. What's shaking? We got the September question and answer episode of the Wind Up Podcast. As usual, I am your host, Mike of MTGA Wines, and we are diving into some of the ins and outs of the harvest season. Also giving you a little bit of a harvest update uh, as well. So a couple of quick announcements. Uh, Number one, please be sure to like, subscribe, share, do all the things, Uh, especially if you want to see more harvest updates, kind of more in real time. Check out our Instagram page, the uh, network formerly known as Twitter uh, and YouTube. We're uploading uh, pretty much videos every other day or every couple of days uh, with plenty of harvest updates. So be sure to check those out. Uh, two, uh, for those of you that are on our mailing list and those of you that are in our wine club, uh, we are going through our fall wine release right now. Uh, if you're in our wine club and haven't received an email from me just yet, don't worry. You're probably going to get that shortly after <laughs> this uh, podcast get wraps up. Uh, and those on our mailing list uh, in about a week and a half, you're going to get uh, the release letter for all the new wines that are coming out this fall. Uh, fair warning for those that don't know, our 2020 Merlot that is in the shipment is a wine club only wine this year. Uh, we only were able to make a couple of barrels of it, so we've had to reserve it all for our wine club folks. Uh, we'll hopefully have some other older vintages of Merlot available, uh, but if you need any more information on the club or the wines or anything like that, head to our website, mtgawines.com, for all of that information, or just drop us a line in the comments and we'll try and get you set up with whatever you need. Uh, that's enough of shameless self-promotion and announcements. Let's go ahead and get into this thing with a little bit of a harvest update before we get into the questions of the day. Uh, the harvest update is that it's kind of started. Uh, I know one producer that's brought in some Cabernet, Chorus and Vineyards. I have a good buddy that works down over there for Kathy Chorus, and they harvested a little bit of Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, they typically harvest probably the earliest of many of the Cabernet producers. I think maybe Steve Mathiason is the only other guy that will pick earlier than them. Um, and I don't know if he's started just yet or not. But uh, we have brought in all of our white wine, our rosé. Brittany has brought in her Grenache. Uh, for her Blair Payton project, and that is it. We're still probably a week and a half, closer to two weeks, until any other red wines come in. Um, We're just kind of in a holding pattern. We're basically, we got everything set up and ready to go. The white wines and lighter reds are going to be done, and we're just waiting for the big guys to come in. Uh, We're seeing that the grapes themselves are still showing that they're underripe, just kind of out in the vineyards. They don't really have all the full flavor. The tannins are still really rough. The flavors are still kind of green in some situations. So that just takes time. And when you have these kind of cool, long seasons, I mean, we're sitting basically in the low to mid 80s during the day. It's supposed to get cooler into the next week. Uh, it's going to be a long, stretched out season. It's going to be very likely that people are crushing grapes around Thanksgiving um, and wrapping things up into the middle of December this year the, at the rate things are going. It's just taken forever. Uh, it's actually pretty beneficial because you get to build lots of flavor and complexity as long as it stays relatively warm outside. Uh, if it starts to get really, really cool and we start seeing a lot of rain, it's going to kind of be like 2011 all over again, where it's going to be this cool, wet, rainy year, and it's really going to be up to the winemaker to do the best they can with what they got. And there are still going to be great wines that come out of a cold and kind of rainy year, but they can be a little bit fewer and far between. Those These kind of cha- what can be challenging vintages kind of separate, and you'll have to, this is just the turn of phrase, it separates, you know, the men from the boys, women from the girls in terms of, you know, winemaking. Like you either really know what you're doing and you can work with it, or 
shit hits the fan and there's a lot of things that just kind of go wrong outside I mean, there's always exceptions but uh, that's kind of the stuff we're looking at right now we're hoping that the weather holds up we're waiting for our big reds to be ready um, otherwise we're just kind of chilling this has been the slowest start to a harvest i've probably had since 2010 or 2011 my first couple of vintages making wine so it's been a long time coming since we've had kind of this one of these cool rainier years and here it is. We're just dealing with it. So unfortunately, not a whole lot on the harvest update side of things. It's going to get more feisty as the weeks go on, but it's still like two weeks out before we finally start seeing it get kind of crazy. You know, we've had a couple of long days, uh, but nothing that's been kind of outside the norm, which is just weird for almost October, as it turns out. All right, let's get into some of these questions. Oh, I got to make sure that I timestamp these bad boys, because if I don't, I'm going to have to like watch myself talk as I edit this video, and I really don't want to do that. You know what I mean? Like, that's just oof, oof. Nothing like hearing yourself on a microphone. Uh, there we go. All right, so right into some of the harvest-related questions. And a reminder for those that want to submit questions, uh, you can do so in the comments of our YouTube video, on our social networks, uh, where you ought to be following us for all these harvest updates. Uh, you can also head to our website, mtjwines.com. There's a little form down at the bottom uh, where you can submit questions via email as well. Any one of those options will work. Question number one. We got, what do you look for in a vineyard before you end up picking? Do you have to make the final call or is it up to the grower for when you pick? Excellent question. Uh, it's This is... It's, it's a combination of both uh, when it comes to the grower and like uh, winemaker relations. We'll get into that. But typically what we're looking for are a few things. One, we can look at the numbers in terms of the acidity, the pH, the sugar level, and the juice. And that'll kind of give us a ballpark of where that fruit is at. But it only tells you half the story. So what you really need to be looking for out there is you're looking you're looking at the grapes themselves you're seeing that if you crush them up and emulsify them that how quickly especially in the case of your red wines how quickly like pigment is leaving the skins uh, you're looking at how <clears throat> coagulated kind of the pulp is around the seeds you're looking at the seeds themselves to see if they're more of a kind of bright green or they're turning a little bit more brown and like a nutty color uh, you're tasting them to see, hey, does this actually taste like sweet, yummy juice, or does it taste like a green bell pepper and underripe? Like, what are we looking for here? Those are really kind of the considerations that you're taking into account, and in my opinion, should be taken into account. Now, there are plenty of folks that say, hey, the number they look for specific numbers in terms of tannin, in terms of phenolics, in terms of sugar, and they say once we hit these thresholds, we can bring them in, and they rely very, very heavily on the numbers. Uh, I'm of the opinion that that's one way to do it. I, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I understand the mentality uh, because it's something that only is going to tell you half the story because if you have the quote unquote right numbers, but the flavors aren't there, you're kind of screwed. And that's a situation that we find ourselves very much this year is that interestingly enough, the numbers are kind of way behind where they ought to be, but flavors are starting to get there. So the opposite can also be true where the numbers are kind of below the range you want, but you still, they still taste good. Like everything's kind of where it ought to be. So that's what happens in some of these more restrained years as long as the season kind of carries through is you might still have to call a pick even though your numbers aren't where they need to be or up to that kind of threshold. Or and even, you know, if you're looking for something above a certain threshold, it might never get there in a year like this. So you kind of have to start deciding how tied to those numbers you want to be and realistically can you make adjustments 
somewhere in your style and, and your winemaking to adjust for the year that's coming to you. You know, this is obviously taught, you know, kind of excluding those that use all the extracts and additives and enzymes and things to kind of doctor up their wines to get them to taste and feel a certain way. Cause you can add tannin powder, you can add acid, you can add, you know, plenty of things that kind of push your wine a direction in terms of like concentrates and extracts and, you know, flavor, you know, adding flavor to your wine. Um, if you're doing that kind of stuff, then none of this really matters. You just pick grapes when they're remotely decent uh, and start making wine. Uh, and they're big and small producers that do that. But for those of us that really focus on more of the handcrafted side of things, uh, we just want the grapes to speak for themselves. So you're looking for those specific little kind of physiological details out in the vineyard to make sure that you're going to get what you want. Um, there are also a few kind of tricks of the trade of when a vineyard is starting to like just slow down and kind of shut down. You know, if you start to see leaves turning color and turning yellow that means that vine's getting pretty done for the season there's not going to be a lot more flavor development at least from what i've seen in my experiences that once those vineyards and we saw this uh, last year in 2022 after that big heat wave we started to see vineyards just shut down it kind of shocked the vineyards and there wasn't really a lot more flavor development or uh physiological development they just kind of sat there and were like all right we're done for the season and you saw that starting to happen as grapes started to dehydrate uh, vines and the leaves started to change colors and you're like all right well i guess the season's wrapping up let's go ahead and get through this so you're always kind of paying attention to those physiological things and for a lot of us those numbers are very much kind of a backboard that we work off of just when we got to call a bank shot we can uh, but there are some people that rely super, super heavily on those numbers and will decide to pick based on that kind of calculation that they have. Um, um, as far as as far as like the grower and like winemaker relations, like this is the one thing that a lot of us do uh, is we're purchasing grapes from other growers. And I rely pretty heavily on the farmers I work with because I'll ask them, you know, kind of their trends and what they're seeing in the vineyard. I have plenty of work to do, so I'm not out in the vineyard every single day. They likely are, or at least every other day. So I use them as a sounding board. But when it comes time and gets closer to picking, I'm out there in the vineyard checking it once a week, twice a week, every couple of days, uh, depending on kind of where we're at and what questions we might have remaining to decide whether or not we're bringing it in. It is totally up to the people buying the fruit. So the winemaker is gets to make that call. There have been plenty of times where folks have, you know, tried to push a pick on us uh, because they thought, oh, you know what? We think the fruit's ready now, so we're just going to run with it. And... We're like, nope, sorry, you're going to have to put the pause on that because we're we're not ready. Like the fruit's not ready. It's not where we want it. So you're going to have to wait. And sometimes they get a little feisty, uh, but it's in our contracts. We get to decide when fruit comes in. So that's a that's a big point of contention or can be a big point of contention because the farmers are of the opinion that they kind of know what's best for their vineyard. And as the winemakers, we have to kind of dig our heels in the sand and say, hey, no, this is what's best for the wine that I want to make. We're looking at, at it more that long-term perspective where the farmers are working with just this season. It, that, that's, that might sound a little bad, but it's not. It's just kind of the way it is. They want to make sure that they you know, harvest with the most yields and the most quality. And if they see kind of what they consider to be a perfect window and we don't, we have to find, we have to have a discussion about it and figure out how we're going to adapt and adjust and figure out kind of what we're going to do from there. So um, there's a lot of logistics that go into calling a pick and deciding when you're going to start making wine. 
it's you're doing constant check-ins with your growers uh, or with your farming team or whoever to make sure that you're actually getting what you want out of it for sure all right question number two and we'll talk about actually this is great after kind of using the um chorus and reference let me make sure i timestamp this there we go all right what characteristics do you get if you harvest earlier or later so this is this is something that is a kind of a a hallmark of my style but someone like kathy corson even takes it a little bit further um where if you harvest a little earlier typically if your fruit has gotten ripe, you're looking at kind of brighter, if, and then we'll talk about red wines here, um, since that's what we kind of focus on here around Napa is, is big reds. So with your red wines, you're typically, there's kind of this range, right? Where you start on one side and it's more like your green, underripe, like your fruit's not ready characteristics. And then on, on the other side of it, you have raisins, right? Like those are the two extremes. Like you've got underripe and you've got overripe, okay? In between there, there's a whole spectrum of different characteristics. And you're going to get from, you know, those really green underripe characteristics. You're going to stick with kind of more herbaceous and then savory and then maybe start getting to your fruit characteristics. You're going to have uh, more like your peppery characteristics. You might go from like red fruit characters, like your bright cherries and strawberries and things. Then you start going to your dark fruits like black cherry and blackberry. And then it goes towards even further down that line towards your more like jammy, really thick kind of juicy characteristics with those, um, that are very like concentrated and rich. Uh, and that's kind of like the spectrum that you're working off of. So depending on how early you harvest, you'll kind of be in one realm and how late you harvest, you'll be in another. You know, we're also looking at, you know, for me, a big point of contention is the acidity in our wines. I want our acidity to be really bright and give all of our wines kind of like that refreshing quality. So I try to pick a little bit earlier where it's kind of the red fruits bordering into the dark fruit characteristics because I don't want the big, slutty, jammy wine. Like that's not the wine I want to make. So I got to harvest a little earlier to make sure that it kind of, I get what I want from, from the grapes. So kind of based on the, your house style and what you want your wines to be, you'll pick your grapes somewhere along that spectrum to make sure that you're getting, that you're kind of leaning towards the characteristics that you want and that stylistically you're gonna be able to achieve what you want. Um, so very typically, if you harvest really early in the season, it's gonna be more of an acid driven, more structured, potentially have some of those greener characteristics. The later you harvest, you're moving towards typically lower acidities, higher alcohols, uh, and just more kind of rich, jammy, slutty wine. <laughs> That's rich, jammy, slutty wine. We should probably put that on a label somewhere at some point. People would probably buy it, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, so the it's it's totally the, the harvest date thing and like when you decide to harvest, whether it's considered early or whether it's considered late, is kind of, it's dependent on the season and just what style that you're trying to make. So um, it's it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, you know, in terms of calling a pick and looking at some of those physiological things and tasting it and saying, okay, do we want to bring this in a little earlier and lean this way? Or do we want to wait a little longer and see if these flavors develop a little bit more into something else? So that there's kind of this little bit of a tug of war that you have about, do you want to harvest early or late? And then once you kind of hone in your house style of what you're going to be known for, that's, that's really when you have it kind of like lined up and you know, whether you kind of know a ballpark that you're going to be harvesting a little earlier than some, maybe later than others, and you just figure it out from there. It comes with a lot of experience, that one. All right. As you go, as fruit comes into the winery, next question, I should say. All right. 
As fruit is coming into the winery, what? how do you decide what winemaking procedures to use throughout the harvest? Um, I mean, this is, this is going to sound, I mean, this might sound a little crazy. I mean, it's not crazy, I guess. But it's, 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 if I can, I'm trying to like wrap my head around the words I want to say, because this is a complicated, this is a lot more complicated question than you might expect, actually. Uh, realistically, the winemaking processes that you use are this weird amalgamation of what you've learned in cellars you've worked in, uh, maybe the education that you have if you went to school for winemaking, and just personal experience of what you think works, better or worse. Excuse me. Um, there was, I mean, for me, like for me, and for a lot of people that I work with, it is this amalgamation of just personal experiences. And it's gonna be a combination of what you have learned uh, from like, you know, reading a book, basically, or if you've taken classes on winemaking, that can play a large role. Um, it's also going to be just hands-on experience. What have you done in a winery or in a cellar that has worked and really benefited certain wines a certain way based on just your past, based on that past experience, you kind of know what judgment calls you want to make. So if you're starting fresh in a new program, you kind of have that backbone of what your current knowledge is. And then based on when you harvest, what fruit you're working with, you're going to have to make slight adaptations to really lean towards the specific style that you're trying to achieve. Or if you're coming into a program that's well-established, like, like let's say you get hired on by some big name, like a Camus or something, like you're going to need to make Camus. You're not there to make your wine. You're there to make their wine. So there's going to be a certain style that you need to adhere to to make sure that you're achieving that. You're, you could say that for any big name, but any small name as well. If a certain winery is known for a certain style of wine, they have a certain set of parameters of procedures that you're going to have to work within. There's going to be certain work orders and certain things that you do to help achieve that house style and what that winery is known for. Uh, if you're starting with a brand new program, then you obviously have a lot more free reign and you can kind of experiment here and there. But even then, you kind of you have to have a pretty good conversation with your client or your boss or whomever and figure out, hey, where do we want this program to go? And kind of lay out options, maybe taste wines that are in your like competitive set of businesses of kind of where you want your wines to play. And from there decide, hey, here are the procedures that we're going to work with. Um, as time goes on and years go on, you definitely start to evolve and kind of adapt what you're doing within your own program. Uh, something that is super, super common is this little bit of like R&D or experimentation, whether it's different yeast strains, whether it's different barrels, whether it's different fermentation vessels or temperatures or whatever. There's a lot of a lot of ways that you can really kind of tailor a wine program to whatever you want to do. And within that, you I, I, I always think it's important to kind of experiment a little bit and figure out, okay, maybe there's something else that we can do that will really have a positive impact on our wine. So don't be so beholden to your own personal winemaking techniques. Now, if you've been working in a place for a while or for yourself for a while and you have a specific style, you obviously have a kind of a, you have to paint within the lines a little bit, but it's okay to have that little project on the side, or maybe you're introducing a new wine to the lineup where you can toy with things a little bit more and have something very unique and very different come out down the road 
as well. So, you know, deciding on what procedures you're going to use really rely on a lot of that, you know, who you're working for and with and kind of what they're known for. Or if it's a new program, how are you going to try and craft a wine in a way that is representative of that vineyard, of that brand that's being created? It's, it's, there's a lot of conversations that go into this. And every once in a while, you just have to throw something at the wall and see what sticks. Because luckily, and this is something I do, and this is something I preach all the time, is that it's really nice to know the rules and kind of the you know, guidelines that you have as a winemaker. That way you know where you can bend them and also where you can break them. Because there are going to be certain things, and this this was very interesting I uh, as kind of a tangent and aside to this. Um, there was an application that I had to fill out to buy fruit from a certain vineyard out here. And it was kind of just off the cuff. I was like, you know what? I'm just curious. I, I want to know what this application entails. I've never had to apply to buy grapes. It's normally just you show up, you talk to the owner, you decide what price is good or bad, and you figure it out from there. Uh, but this is like a full-on like couple of pages, like not just multiple you know, guess questions like hey like a couple short essay questions in terms of like hey what are your what winemaking procedures would be representative like of this vineyard and in this appellation um you might be able to guess who that was a very prominent uh wine growing company out here but it was interesting because you could tell it was easy to see that within the questions that they were asking there's a very specific like way they were pushing you like, Hey, this is how this wine ought to be made. It was very, not so subtly worded of like how, you know, if you're using new Oak, how much new French Oak, how long is it going to be aged? You know, where, you know, what kind of toasting levels, like it was everything, the stuff like that. It was all about the pick dates. It was all about how you're handling these fermentation processes, you know, and a lot of this procedural procedural, is that how you say that word? Am I saying it dumb procedural, right? I think I'm saying that dumb. Anyway, moving on. Um, it's it's there was like this just very specific, you know, route like, hey, this is kind of, you know, maybe answer the question this way and you're going to get access to this fruit. And me being the jackass that I am, I'm like, oh, no, no. It's, I mean, it depends. I mean, I've never worked with this fruit, so I don't really know. But typically, if I'm making Cabernet, this is my what I do. And if it needs more new oak because I'm tasting it and we're seeing that it could use benefit from more new oak, then we add in more new oak and things like that. Like it, it was very, I had these like loosey goosey like artists and like answers, I guess. Um, I didn't get access to that vineyard, which is fine. I couldn't afford the fruit anyway. So, you know, there are, there are definitely, there are definitely folks out there that say, hey, if you're making XYZ wine, like this is what you have to do. Um, it's part of the reason why I think Napa and a lot of Cabernets really, really homogenized in the late 2000s and through the 20 teens. It kind of seemed like everyone was working in the same direction, um, which was frustrating. It's it's just like like there's so many good wines, but none of them are really that interesting because it's the same barrels, the same consultants, the same stuff. Like it's all all the all the procedures have kind of like funneled down to this one point, and there's not a lot there's not a lot of differentiation from one to the next. Um, these days, at least there's less and less in my honest opinion. So when you're deciding your winemaking procedures, like you want to make sure that you want to make sure that you're doing something unique as well. Like take all that other stuff into account of, you know, who you're working for, what variety you're making, what appellation it's from and where those grapes are grown and the climate and what you think is going to be best to create the most interesting wine that you can from that property. 
but damn it, you better be doing something unique on top of that. So, you know, whatever your winemaking procedures are, you need to find a way to have some sort of X factor in there, whether it's your barrel program, whether it's your aging program, how you blend, uh, what fermentation vessels you're using. Like, it's, there's so many different things that you could key into to say, hey, you know what, this is what we're going to do that makes our wines different than everybody else or different than the vast majority of people. This is how we're going to build a little bit of cachet within our own program. And that's, I would say, arguably the most important thing when you're deciding on what procedures you're going to use is you need to find one, what, well, probably number one, what works and pushes you towards the style that you're trying to achieve. But two, within that style, what is actually making your wine stand out from the herd? There's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of great wine out there. How are you going to be unique and stand out of that crowd that's when it comes to your winemaking procedures you got to have something you got to have some x factor in there somewhere otherwise um it's just going to be another big juicy cabernet i don't know what to tell you yeah all right next question how often does a batch go bad during harvest um listen this is this is kind of a funny one because I'm gonna answer this very tongue in cheek, but this is pretty honest. That if you have a if you have a batch of wine like legitimately spoil, you you suck at your job. It's that's the long and short of it. Now there are certain situations where you kind of have to dig yourself out of a hole as a winemaker, you know, because just nature is kind of lined it up against you, but. If you're if you're in if you have harvested grapes and you're making wine out of what was quality fruit and you screw it up, you're just bad at your job. And I've known more than a couple of people that have done just that. They did not last very long in their positions. They got axed pretty quick. Um, it's it's just kind of hilarious to me. It's like you have this one shot, literally one shot every year to try and do the best you can with what you do best in terms of you being a winemaker. And if you screw it up where a batch like literally spoils on you, dude, you, you're not meant for this gig. You're just not. Sorry. Full stop. You're just not. Um, the only exception to this is, is, like I mentioned, when if Mother Nature is playing, you know, playing a stiff hand against you, you know, if... If she's got all the cards and you're just sitting there hoping to go all in at some point, I mean, I don't know what you're going to do. And this is really what happened in 2022 with that heat wave that rolled through. I was talking to a colleague of mine that she had this batch of fruit that came in after that heat wave. And she, we were just talking about the numbers and what it tasted like and all the issues that it had. It was like, oh, like based on like just the chemistry of this wine, there's a pretty good shot. It just doesn't finish fermenting. Like the sugar is so high. The VA is super high. Like there's there are so many things that are like wrong with this batch of grapes that came in that I'm already starting off on a bad foot. I don't know what I'm going to do. And when you have, I mean, that happens so rarely, but it can happen that you you got to dig into the toolbox and find all the tools to be able to fix that. It's it's going to take some additions. It's going to take some filtering. It's going to take a lot of work to stabilize that wine and get it where you want to go. So if you do start off on a really bad foot, I mean, there is there are some things you can do to mitigate that, but not always. So you just have to try and fix it on the back end, which becomes more of a chemistry problem. So you can prevent a batch from kind of prevent it like a bad batch from going bad batter worse if like actually spoiling but it's going to take a lot more and you're probably gonna have to doctor it up in some way um to 
get it there. It just depends on kind of how far you want to go down that rabbit hole. There are plenty of tools to do that uh, for us winemakers between all the filtering processes, all the additives. I mean, you can make stuff like that work. It's just going to probably be, it's going to be a Frankenstein kind of wine and likely an outlier. It's not probably going to be like your benchmark, like flagship wine from that year. You're probably going to try and find something else to put that in. If you even use it at all, you might end up just selling it on the bulk wine market that, you know, pennies on the dollar to try and cover your costs because you're like, yeah, this is not going to fit into our program. So, you know, I would say that it's super, super rare that a batch really, really goes bad. Um, it's typically a smaller lot. I would say that someone kind of forgot about in the corner of the cellar or something, but Man, if if you're working at a winery and you have like a a thousand gallon, ten thousand gallon, hundred thousand gallon tank go bad, you're probably fired. Um, you're probably not long for that world. Um, you know, mistakes do happen, but in order for a batch of wine to really like truly spoil and go bad, that takes a lot of negligence. Like you really just need to not be paying attention at all. So, you know. Shout out to all the natural winemakers out there letting their wines go bad. hey oh, gotcha. Uh, <laughs> sometimes wine just can't make itself. Go back and w- listen to the I don't get natural wine episode from a few months ago. You'll understand. You'll understand that joke. All right. Gosh, I, I never miss out on a jab on the natural wine thing because it's just I find it hilarious. And people are just so defensive about it. It makes me happy just to like, you know. I like, I like being that devil's advocate guy sometimes. All my friends know this. They understand. All right. What is the process of adding a new wine or style to your lineup? Ah, this is all right. So if you're if you're working through harvest and you have like a new wine that you're going to be working on, we, this is kind of going back to those winemaking procedures a little bit, is stylistically, where do you want that wine to be? If you're making a white wine, do you want it to be really bright and refreshing and crisp? Do you want it to be richer and a little bit rounder? Do you want it to be really rich and like oaky, buttery, like some of those really extreme Chardonnays that we all know about? You know, you kind of have to figure out like stylistically, like what are your benchmarks? Like where, where do you want your wine to play? And once you figure that out, you need to understand what those winemaking techniques entail. But... Just because, say, this producer uses these barrels and makes this wine and ages it for this amount of time utilizing these techniques, that doesn't mean you're going to make the same wine. This is kind of the crazy thing, and this is where it's a great comparison to what brewers do with beers that I think a lot of us know. Like Brewers, when it comes like the recipes of their beer, when especially when it's a well-known beer and like distributed around the country or world, like there's a very specific recipe and how-to that they keep outrageously close to the chest. Like they don't want anyone else to know because there is a, at a certain level you can replicate it. Uh, it. This is a kind of a great case study on this as you look at like Grapefruit Sculpin, that's a beer from down in Southern California. And when they got acquired, uh, Ballast Point, the brewery got acquired uh, by a larger company. They continued on making that you know famous kind of iconic like craft beer. But another brewer down there started a... a uh, <laughs> a uh, beer called Invasive Species, where they basically were able to like, hey, kind of recreate that beer and keep it like within a small brewing house. And the name Invasive Species for that was just like, oh, mm, here's your salt. Take it. Enjoy it. It was a beautiful moment in small business versus big business. Just that nice little jab. You feel it. You feel it. Uh, But when when you're adding like that style of wine, 
you can literally recreate the procedures of another winemaker and you're going to get something very different based on your cellar, your barrels, your tech. Like there's just, there, it's not, they're too, simply just too many variables. And you're not going to be able to completely recreate it over the course of three years of aging a wine, whether it's a white or a red. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, none of us really worry about talking about our procedures or our, or our styles of winemaking because like you can give somebody the same fruit from the same vineyard, harvest it on the same day. You're going to have a couple completely different types of wine. So it's a little bit less of an issue in that, that regard. But when you're trying, so when we talk about like adding a new wine, we talk about kind of stylistically what we want to do to it. We bounce a lot of ideas off of each other. Like, Hey, this is kind of the, the inspiration behind this wine. You know, let's, does that kind of, ring true like when you start tasting it does that make sense did we achieve what we're sorting you know trying to do and it's you can kind of cherry pick some of those other techniques from other producers or those wines that are in that competitive set and say okay like this is what these producers do this vineyard is different in this way this way this way let's adapt and kind of adjust so that we can kind of push the wine in that direction because it's if you have you're trying to make like us, if you're working with Riesling or Pinot Gris and you're trying to use like Alsatian white wines as your benchmark, obviously California is not all sauce. Like you're going to have to, you're going to have to play with some stuff to try and adapt, you know, what they do in that part of the world to what you're trying to do here in California, because you can't just follow this cookie cutter recipe and get where you want to go. So you have to make certain judgment calls and be able to adjust. A lot of this, when you're in the process of adding a new wine or style to your lineup, relies so heavily on your taste buds. You need to be able to smell and taste that wine and understand what the wine needs. If you can't do that, it's a much more difficult process. At that point, you're just trying to you know, reinvent the wheel you know, using whatever techniques you can. But if you can smell and taste wine and say, oh... I really like this for this, 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 and this reason. Oh, here, this characteristic I'm not a huge fan of. How can we deal with that? Right? So it, there, there are certain things, and a lot of that comes down to um, once the fermentations are rolling, they're pretty much rolling. Like you're not, I mean, you could probably chill them down or warm them up. You can extend the maceration a little bit. You could do a cold soak beforehand for your big reds. There's a lot of things that you can do ahead of time. Once your wine is in barrel and starting the aging process, it's it's a little bit more finite. There's only so much that you can do to really impact the flavor of your wine. And basically it all comes down to the vessel that it's being stored in and how long it's gonna be stored in there along with how much sediment you're leaving in that barrel in terms of like the heavy lees. And are you stirring that barrel? Are you going through the malactic conversion? Like there's a handful of things that you can do uh, that are just kind of within the kind of basic realm of winemaking outside of using all the extracts and additives and stuff that we talk about, right? So, you know, it's when you're adding a new wine or style, you want to find that inspiration and kind of the benchmark of where you want to be. And from there, you kind of have to try and reverse engineer it a bit and understand based on what you're tasting, even during the fermentation process, like, hey, can this wine stand up to more new oak. Maybe we need to throw, throw more new oak. You know, we've never really done a malactic fermentation on this. Maybe we push it. Maybe we let this go through ML, at least partial ML this time and see how that does. Like there's a lot of like little things from there uh, that you need to do to kind of like tweak that wine to get it into the style that you want. 
Um, it's really just understanding the procedures and kind of the options that you have in front of you and being able to taste and smell that wine and know that fruit and that vineyard and say, all right, here's how we're going to do this to create X, Y, Z. It's like, you know, the goal, and now you just got to build the path to get there. And if you've been doing this long enough, you can smell and taste a wine and be like, oh, okay, like, here's what we need to do differently to make sure this wine has that distinct flavor or style that we want in this new wine that we're making. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it probably sounds a little esoteric. I feel like that was like a really long non answer. It's basically taste the wine and see what it needs. Huh? That's what you do. Uh, and that's, pretty true to be completely honest uh, but you definitely need to understand the style that you're shooting for and what techniques will help get you there that is a, that's a big part of it so you have to understand all that and then be able to adapt on the fly based on what you're actually seeing and tasting in real time that's super super important all right we got time for one more let's do one more shall we all right during the harvest season, is there any room for experimentation when you're making your wine? Ah, we got we got into this just a little bit. So we'll get into it a little further. So when it comes to experimentation, you know, if you're making wine for yourself, if you're making wine for someone else and it's your day job, there's obviously going to be a certain kind of level that you need to hit. Like you got to paint within the colors a little bit to create the pretty picture because that producer, whether it's your own brand or someone else's are known for certain things. You might have a little bit of leeway and some wiggle room and some autonomy to kind of do what you want, but you know full well that if it's a well-established brand, like you got to kind of paint within the lines. You can't be too crazy. Kind of going back to that Camus example we mentioned earlier, they're known for a very specific style of wine. You're not going to show up in there and tell the Wagners, hey, we're overhauling this. We're doing everything different. Everything changes today. They're going to be like, yeah, cool. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for playing. Um, that's not a thing. They're known for a specific style of wine. And that wine needs to be made in that style. That's how it works, right? If you're working for a new brand that's up and coming and they haven't produced any wine just yet and you're kind of on the ground floor of it, you're still going to have some, you know, parameters to stay within. Because if they've done their homework as they should have and as you should have if you're starting start this program, is you should know who the competitive set is. You should know who are the producers that we want to be associated with. And from there try and make it happen like and that's a very you know you from there you can garner a lot of information about who's or kind of around you in your orbit or who you want to be in your orbit and adapt you know as you see fit the experimentation really comes in in kind of these small batches where this is something that we do all the time it's something that a lot of people do all the time is we maybe buy a couple of barrels that we've never used before. I think right now I typically buy at least anywhere from one to three different types of barrels that I've never used before, whether they're from the same barrel makers that I've used in the past or from completely different ones. And I kind of see how our wines react to them. Because if I can add a little extra dash of something in our final blend that makes it more complete and more complex, I'm going to do that. But it has to enhance the wine totally and not be necessarily a defining factor that changes stylistically what we've done. So it is kind of that fine line. You don't want to experiment too much and completely shift your style. You want just enough to add kind of that nice little X factor to your wine in some, some situations. Uh, you're always kind of looking for those ways to improve your program. Um, you can play with growing techniques and kind of what you're doing out in the vineyards in terms of 
uh, maybe trellising. We have uh, working with a vineyard right now that has a bunch of like mylar film like down underneath the vines to help reflect UV light back up into the canopy and onto the grapes. Um, that happened in a very small block of the vineyard. Now it's happening across the entire vineyard because it works so well. Um, there are room, there, there, there's plenty of room for a lot of experimentation. It's, I think, imperative though that you understand that there needs to be a backstop against what the style of wine is or what people want it to be to kind of hold head you off at the pass because you don't want to get too experimental and be too crazy this is a conversation i've had with many clients is because i do make wine very differently than a lot of napa producers that they say hey we don't want you to go crazy here like this is still you know kind of our label and we want to make sure it ends up in the right you know in the right I don't know, place. And, and I'm like, no, 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 no worries. Like we're going to use, this is, I, I can make that style of wine. Don't you worry. Like here's a wine that I've made. That's very much like that as a matter of fact. And here are the techniques that we use to help achieve that. And so you do have to kind of have that conversation with people of like, Hey, how, how weird do you want to get? Or do you want just like line it up, knock it down, nap a cab or whatever, you know, you have to be able to experiment and understand where, again, to push some of those boundaries and break some of those rules, but also stay within the guidelines and your parameters of what that producer is expecting or what your boss is expecting or what your clients are expecting. Uh, you really have to be able to work within that realm, in my opinion. So there is definitely room for experimentation. Every single year, winemakers will do it in some way, shape, or form, but typically in very small batches just to see if it's something they can incorporate into their program at a later date. And if they can't, then it, that little guy, don't worry about that little guy. That guy, little, that little guy never happened. That happens from time to time when you're just kind of experimenting and you don't want to waste a bunch of wine either. So that's why it typically is done in small batches. We only have one time a year where we get to do this winemaking job. So, you know, well, if you work in two hemispheres, you can do it twice. Don't argue with me anyway. There's you gotta you gotta have that kind of backstop and have that little bit of experimentation because if you find something that's really really great that can you know provide this extra layer of complexity to the wine and you know it's a I'm trying uh, proof you basically it's a proof of concept right it's like hey if we if we do this let's see what happens like the re the wine's gonna stay the same like I just want this one or two barrels where I can toy with it and if it works really really well look at how it you know adds this beautiful characteristic to the final product that we've been working with. And so a lot of the experimentation, like much many, you know, experiments in any business, it's just a, you're trying to go for a proof of concept. You're trying to figure out, Hey, does this crazy idea of mine actually make sense? And will it integrate into our wine program long-term or is it just a one and done, you know, mad scientist kind of project? Yeah. All right. We got through it. That was a very solid harvest focused episode. I appreciate you all. Uh, checking in. Oh, I do have a wine of the week. Hold on. I completely forgot. Um, I do have a wine of the week. And let me make sure I get timestamp this. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So wine of the week. Uh, we actually had this. We had it last night since it's Oktoberfest. Uh, we were enjoying some beers and then went over to a friend's house for a little bratwurst and sauerkraut and all the hot spicy mustard and all the good stuff. Uh, but we opened up a 2014 uh, Corson, since we mentioned Corson earlier in the episode. That's why they're so front of mind right now, actually, uh, is we opened up their 2014 Napa Valley Cabernet. Uh, we did decant it. It needed a little bit of extra air. It was a little tight, uh, but it was beautiful. It was 
I mean, what Kathy Corson does um, with her wines is just outrageously. She's she is a benchmark out here in Napa and just one of the old guard that's been killing the game for such a long time. Um, don't let the location on Highway 29 fool you. Those wines are gangster because um, normally, I mean, there's so many folks that are like, oh, we got to get We got to get off of 29. We got to get off the trail. You know, we don't want to go to the big guys. They're one of the small guys that are on the main stretch that are just doing a hell of a job. So if you're looking for some just kick-ass Cabernet, uh, the kind of the older the better from from Kathy and what she does. The new releases are really intense, really structured, but beautiful. There's a lot of finesse in those wines as well. Uh, if you're into old wine, though, Corson is a great one to like lay down and hang on to. Uh, God, they just last forever. It's like done up on Howe Mountain. They same thing. Like they just those wines will just. Lay them down for 20 years, they'll be fine. Don't even worry about it. So, Wine of the Week, 2014, Corson, Napa Valley Cabernet. Uh, if you can track it down, please do. It's worth giving a shot. Uh, as always, thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back next week. I think we're going to do our Harvest Shenanigans episode next week. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about just the madness of Harvest and just the quirky things that happen that you just don't see coming. Uh, for those of you that listen to the Hospitality Shenanigans uh, episode where oh, it's, it's a little bit of PTSD there, but it's it, it was a fun one diving into just all the crazy things that can happen in the hospitality world. We're going to dive into some of the seller work and how that goes down as well next week. So thank you all so much. Please remember to like, subscribe, do all the things. Uh, submit your questions in the comment section on YouTube or through any of our social networks at MTGA Wines. We'll be back next week with a new episode diving into our harvest shenanigans and the madness that harvest really brings to the table. We'll catch you later.